0: Before Christ. Today I'm joined by Dr. Erika Bakyoki. Erica is a legal scholar specializing in equal protection jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching and sexual, sexual ethics. She's also a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the USA and a fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center where she founded the direct direct Wollstonecraft project. <laughs> Today we will speak about her brilliant book the rights of women reclaiming a lost vision. So then uh, just to begin there, okay, what f- prompted your interest in law and the rights of women and some of those central concerns that we've seen in your work?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I uh, was um, raised in a family um, where my mom married and divorced three times. Um, so by the time I got to college, you could say I ran to the Women's Center (laughs) on (laughs) campus um, and got really interested in feminist issues. I think because I just had um, some like real kind of emotional um, turmoil from those divorces. I also had a couple of friends take their own life early on in my life. So I guess, um, I think like a lot of people these days who are really hurting emotionally, I sort of turned toward politics for this sort of fix. Um, It didn't fix all that well though. (laughs) Um, And I, um, I actually got to spend um, a semester down in Washington, D.C., and I came across um, a bunch of books that were really important in my life. At that point, um, I to deal with kind of the emotional trauma of, of my childhood, I had actually um, uh, spent some time drinking and drugs and things like that. So by then, I had entered 12-step programs and so had been taught how to pray, but I didn't really have like an intellectual kind of Worldview or philosophical worldview to accompany the prayer that I've been taught. So when I was down in D.C. during my junior year in college, um, which is you know about halfway through college, after I'd spent a lot of time in women's studies, um, I came across uh, some books that professors um, down there had introduced me to um, that were in what in the United States was called in the 1990s the communitarian movement. But It was just really kind of a critique of um liberalism, I guess you would say, and um sort of an orientation of rights as uh, the primary kind of way we think about ourselves as political beings. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of them was Marianne Glendon's book Rights Talk, but others, um, I don't know if your your uh, you know viewers would know about them, but books by Michael Sandel and Mattiazioni, they were just really um shifted kind of how I thought about things. so I, started studying constitutional law and um began to see that um that a lot of my questions that i had sort of that had come up around feminism could be answered better if i sort of turned toward more political theory and at that time i also was having this parallel um uh, experience where i'd been very anti-religion especially anti-catholic church as kind of a women's studies student but my prayer was just taking me, um, opening me to new conversations, meeting new people. And it's a very long story. But I was also coming sort of in parallel way um, back into the Catholic Church, which is where I was baptized as a baby. So those two things kind of helped me um, start to be take a big interest in Catholic social teaching um, and um, after I'd been introduced in political theory to Aristotle, Plato, and kind of more pre-modern thinkers. So that's where I became um, wanting to kind of look at how um, the ancient and, and medieval thinkers had thought about rights and justice and politics and the common good and questions like that and also how the church had you know this millennial institution so i've really been influenced by those kind of um sources
0: hmm, brilliant. and then um regarding some of those figures even academically that you mentioned there even more personally i wonder then what was it that day uh, was especially um Relevant from their work that appealed to you, and why has that been so influential in your life? Then,
1: yeah. So, I guess with Marianne Glendon, um, she would definitely be the most influential over me, and has been in the in the years and decades really after. So, she, for your viewers who don't know her, you know, she's an American. So, um, but she is actually internationally known in a couple of different ways. She's um, has just retired from Harvard Law School, teaching there for. Several decades, um, but was also the f- kind of highest ranking woman in the Catholic Church for a long time as um, the uh, president of the Pontifical um, Academy. Um, now I'm forgetting of social sciences, I believe. I, it's funny that that's slipping my mind. But and then she also led for John Paul II the Beijing Conference on Women. And so she had been thinking about um, rights for a long time, but then also. As a serious Catholic, as a pro life, um, you know, Catholic. And I don't, I think she would call herself a pro life feminist. That's not, you know, that's sort of the rhetoric I use. Mm -hmm. She probably does that less so, but she certainly believes very much in women's rights and has taught me a lot about that. So I think she would probably call herself a pro life feminist as well. Um, And so I I, I guess her book, Rights Talk, though it's not fully about abortion, because I've been so pro choice and so pro abortion, it really got me to see um, just so clearly that at least in the American context, which is very libertarian, um, different from how Ireland has been, uh, for, you know, it's history now, maybe more so (laughs) because you're learning too much from America, um, but very libertarian. And so we kind of gave women her right to privacy, but then nothing else. And so it really helped me to see. And then, um, because of my experience in 12-step programs, seeing how people had really cared for me, had really like taken time out of their you know busy schedules or whatever to really spend time with me and to tend, attend to my needs and then seeing that the same was true of the of the grass of kind of the grassroots of the pro-life movement in, in my country um how women needed a lot more than just rights um, that we needed this community structure um that that a libertarian focus on rights had kind of been eating away and so that was kind of what she taught me through um go, moving through a lot of you know constitutional law cases and a lot of political philosophy, but um, I did learn a lot from her.
0: Mm, Brilliant, thank God. And um, I'd love to look next at how your own book then has built upon some of these lessons and um, developed those. So you have The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. I want to ask first what moved you to write that book, and then what do you hope that readers will take away from it and gain from it?
1: Yeah, so I started um, my first two books, one was called the cost of choice. um, uh, About the impact of abortion on women written by all women, Um, and then I did another book called women sex in the church, a case for Catholic teaching. Um, And after I had finished with those and done some speaking and other writing about them, I really started to immerse myself in constitutional law and in particular the Ruth the work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg which I think we'll get to later because it's later on in the book um but when I was kind of critiquing the way that American feminists were and you know pro-choice feminists were thinking about abortion I just couldn't get past this idea that they were just not only wrong about abortion but they were wrong about rights and how to think about rights and not only that but that they that it's just sort of this like common notion or co- kind of common narrative that there's this unbroken line that you can trace from today's kind of feminists or today's women's rights activists. Although of course now we can't even they don't even use the word women anymore, which you know is its own problem. Um, which is you know there's a seed of that of that problem in in their way of thinking about rights, but. Um, that there, they had this false narrative that there's this unbroken line that can be traced from how they think about rights, back to the way that women's rights advocates have always thought about rights, all the way back to someone like Mary Wollstonecraft who is an 18th century British philosopher. And, you know, and that line goes straight through um, the suffered the American suffragists but also suffragists in other countries, and how they thought about rights. And so what I realized that I had to do, especially as someone who had a great interest in training in political theory was that I couldn't just stop at the constitutional law and kind of, you know, argue with them about that in our own context, because the way we all were thinking about rights was just wrong headed, we had taken a wrong turn. And so I had to like dig deeper um, into that. And and Glennon had taught me a lot of that, but I had to go kind of back back deeper into the way those um, those earliest women's rights advocates thought about rights and what i discovered is that it's entire it's entirely different approach um and just to not go on and on about it because we'll get into more of the details but it would be really untenable for philosophically for one of these older women's rights thinkers to think that we had a woman had a right to abortion because really women had these pre-existing duties of care to their unborn child and what rights were for is for them to be able to take, you know, undertake or fulfill those duties. So rights were necessary to fulfill duties and to do so virtuously. And that's the kind of language they used. And so when you think of someone like Mary Wollstonecraft, her book about rights is far more about virtue than it is about rights. Um, And so that's what I kind of am trying to reclaim in the book.
0: Mm, Brilliant. Can you tell us a bit more then about um, Mary Wollstonecraft, why she's such an important figure and what then did mark her moral vision, that kind of more virtue um, ethic? Does
1: that make sense? Yeah. 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 So she's a really incredible figure because the way she's um remembered today uh is, you know, by kind of um most people is that she just was really pushing for women's rights in education and marriage. And so now, you know, we have all those rights. So why do we need to, why do we care about Mary Wollstonecraft? But what's really interesting about her is in the last say 20 years, there's been all sorts of new female political theory um, uh, uh, professors and academics, and so they really kind of recovered more of her work. Um, And so I sort of interpret her, but then, you know, do a lot of kind of checking with secondary sources to make sure my interpretation was accurate, because it seemed to me that she was this, like deeply Aristotelian, or even, you know, had had really been influenced by the pre modern tradition. And so thinking about not like you know, uh, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and John Stuart Mill, which is the modern tradition, um, which I think has gotten us into a lot of trouble, um, but the pre-modern tradition, so Plato, Aristotle, and even the Christians. um, And she herself was raised as an Anglican, um, but then was very influenced by a Unitarian um, minister um, in England. And so her Her own personal story is kind of a mess after she writes *The Rights of Woman*, um, in the main because um, she finds a man who can't like live up to, doesn't live up to uh, the great vision of kind of manliness that she gives in um, this book, *The Rights of uh, the Rights of Woman* or *The Vindication of the Rights of Woman*. So she, you know, becomes very depressed and all sorts of things like that. But her moral vision, which is what undergirds my book. Is this idea exactly as I said before um, that rights are necessary, very much like civil and political rights are absolutely necessary for women, but they're necessary in order to fulfill prior duties um, to God, to oneself, to others, and to one's community. And why? Because we're certain kinds of beings. So you can say we have natural or human rights. But you can't just stop there, you have to say, well, what is it to be a human being, and she had a particular understanding of what it was to be human. Um, And her understanding is that human beings in order to be happy, and this is the pre modern account, in order to be happy, that we have to live virtuous lives. Um, And that's what brings happiness. And so she says, you know, things like um, you know, freedom without virtue um, will reduce men to beasts, (laughs) because a freedom that's bereft of of kind of the self mastery of the passions will just turn people into people you know into people who are enslaved by their passions and any of us who have dealt with addiction know that to be absolutely true we are not free when we're kind of doing whatever our passions want we're very much enslaved and so she understood that very clearly and um and the second point the woman part is really important she was her main interlocutor was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of her main interlocutors, and he had claimed in his very famous book, The Emile, which is a book about education, um, that women were really um, uh, designed basically for men's delight, for men's, kind of to please men, for men's pleasure. But what they had to do in order to help men um, to be good citizens, was they had to have the women had to have this thing very important. It's kind of the only virtue that that Rousseau called women to, which was purity and chastity. And if they real if they had that virtue, um, then they could kind of manipulate men uh, and have power over them to cause them to sort of be these good citizens. And so she said, you know, she had good things to say about purity and chastity, but she asked that men have it too. And she wanted to open the whole panoply of virtues to women. And why is that? Because she understood what are human beings, but um, human beings are these, um, uh, uh, we have these common, we're, we're rational animals. And so as rational or rational creatures as she called us. And so we have these common ends, both men and women share these common ends. So what is that end but virtue? And so we all had to attain to all of the virtues. Um, And otherwise we were gonna just get ourselves into a lot of trouble, (laughs) both men and women would. And so that's our common, that's the common aim or the common end and why we have, why we're equal is that we're both designed for excellence. She says, I'll give you one quote is to rise in excellence by the powers implanted for that purpose. And she sees virtue as having this one single standard which is God. And so if God is the single standard, then the logic of virtue requires that both men and women Um, aim after and imitate God through that one single standard, even though men and women are different um, in terms of their bodies and kind of the duties that are required of them, especially because of reproduction.
0: Mm, Thank you, Erica. And um, another element of your work in line with that and building on that, then I think is most important is um, the emphasis on embodiment and how that contrasts with much modern kind of feminism, which seems to be in many cases kind of neo-gnostic and so right. a long story which you can tell us more about. But um so I want to ask you then, and I with that in the past, why was it vital to acknowledge and celebrate our embodied sexual differences? And what are some of the examples that you do highlight in the book then?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing is that a lot of um feminists they kind of follow Descartes. And so they basically just say, in order to um understand ourselves as capable of reason, because for so many kind of you know, centuries, there was this understanding that women weren't as rational as men. And so the feminists responded and said, well, in order to say that women are as rational as men, we have to just go via kind of Descartes and say that women's bodies are not important, um, that we just have to be the same with men with regard to our minds, and so kind of forget about our bodies. And what Wollstonecraft does is kind of bring the two together. She understands that we're bodies and souls together. So, um where either kind of embodied souls or um ensouled, uh, animals or however you want to put it but that where this integrated one and so um the way kind of our virtues manifest and even the way like we have to struggle more with different virtues is due to the different bodies that we have so she says very clearly you know one of the ironies that she sees with someone like rousseau who sees you know women as required to have chastity and then therefore having this the sexual double standard where anytime a woman gets pregnant or even raped or something she's blamed the strange thing the irony of that is that it's actually men's bodies that she says are more libidinous um what's interesting now we know is because of just testosterone um that is kind of blazing through men's bodies that makes them you know have more sort of aggression uh competitiveness but also a greater libido and so it is actually men she says you know the want of male chastity is this cause of women's suffering and so she really calls men to be chaste, which is something you of course would never hear (laughs) in a modern day feminist which is unfortunate because of things like me too which i think was a worldwide movement um which is you know just men using their power over women um, rather than um learning how to be true gentlemen which is to exercise self-mastery over their own sexual desires and passions um, and so so that's one way um that you know embodiment um is kind of important is to understand these different ways that we need to um you know struggle in our in um in self-mastery right is the different temptations that we have as embodied people um, but you know there's other ways too so You know at the time of say industrialization which is this huge part of my book because i um i mean that takes us back so prior to industrialization um women and men you know when married um really worked together in an agrarian setting with this great deal of cooperation and not because you know they were more perfect or something like that but because they had to for subsistence and so what happens with industrialization is that you know men are pulled into the workplace first and rather than this kind of interdependency that has been the case prior to industrialization men are suddenly wage earners which makes the women at home even though they're doing just as much as they always have been um, much 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 more dependent on men for those wages that are required like for their own subsistence so this dependency um you know, causes then, uh, you know, this this inequality, which co- which sort of is the precondition for the first wave of feminism. Um, but it also causes women to go out into the workplace, um, especially poor women to go out into the workplace. And so there's all sorts of debates about, you know, should women to be considered and these are debates that go from industrialization all the way up to our time. is should women can be considered like strictly equal to men kind of ignoring their bodies and the fact that they are the ones who. Um, you know, who bear children, um, or should we take into consideration, um, you know, those those differences. And so, you know, when it comes to later um, with industrialization, but then also with liberalism and the move toward the pill and toward abortion, it basically is a capitulation entirely to that strict equality view, um, which says basically women and men should be exactly the same And that same person should be the model of the man, which is unencumbered, um, you know, able to like detach himself or uh, escape the consequences of sexual activity. And so if we're going to make women equal to men, we'll have to have her be able to, you know, escape the consequences of sexual activity too, which requires, of course, contraception, abortion. This is an entirely different way of thinking about, um, about things um, than, you know, prior to. You know around the time of industrialization when the first wave feminists thought that if you allow even contraception but especially abortion if you allow those things um uh to be easily accessible then you will do great damage to women exactly for the reason that we've seen after the sexual revolution because women will i mean men will more easily escape the consequences of reproduction and women will be left you know poor bereft of paternal help. um or having to get abortions and take the lives of their own children, which obviously causes all sorts of harm, not only to the child, but to the mom, too.
0: Mm, So hopefully I've
1: answered that question. I mean, it's a big question in terms of the history of of feminism, but...
0: (laughs) No, thank you. And uh, of course, people can go to read your book to find out more. But um, I think, in line with what you're saying there, what I appreciate uh, very much is, how you unveil this kind of um, liberal anthropology, which is underlying many people's views, which is often presented as um, neutral, as if it's just this is the way it's always been, it always will be, which I think is absurd and you can see it in teaching too, speaking about my role as a teacher, and you can see how Rousseau and the, that general philosophy undergirds so much of our education, I think, to our children's detriment. So um, just going beyond that then, I want to ask you how does this more incarnate way of of, um, of life and what it means to be human offer a more full life for women beyond maternity alone and as we would often hear as stereotyped um, as if there were tie- women were tied to the kitchen sink and so on again that Rossoean woman is born free but everywhere in chains almost sort of thing and why is that then imperative for individuals and the society alike? is that scales? yeah
1: yeah no i mean i think that that's the thing is if we have a better understanding of who women are then we're going to have a better understanding of who all of us are and that's a real beautiful insight i think that the catholic church certainly has um in terms of sort of seeing the model as you know the Marian, um the Marian model um but i think that's true of of christians everywhere Um, um and so how is it you know that if we if we understand ourselves along this kind of liberal, you know, like, I mean, you just think about sort of the state of nature theorists who basically said, like, it's, you know, the male citizen goes out um, and takes, you know, his part um, in in the new polity, and, and this all depends for him to be able to do this, for him to have this level of independence on the woman being back doing the caregiving, because caregiving always has to be done, right? I mean, in order to have new citizens, you know, come up, there's always going to be these women um, who are back doing this caregiving. And so it's all based around kind of this assumption that's that takes place but because of what i said in terms of this this um it had been sort of interdependence it breaks and there becomes this much greater dependence on women then men are or women are much more um vulnerable to kind of male like sexual exploits to male drinking this is why you know, to kind of going to, you know, bars and brothels and all those kinds of things, which is why the first wave of feminism in the United States at least had this urge for like, it was kind of joined in many ways with the temperance movement because really blaming, you know, alcohol for causing a lot of problems and, and men coming back, um, you know, and, and um, doing great damage to their wives and, and that kind of thing. So it's like, it's a false understanding of how, you know, you don't have these individual kind of public men and then these private women who are, you know, all alone. it's a it's a um it's always still interdependent. Um, but if you have that false understanding, it kind of is built. then society is kind of built around it, where men can then be, you know, the market actors who are independent and um you know, beholden to their boss and beholden to the market and because they can ro- rely on those women um, to do all that. But when women start to have to say like we've got to, you know, fight sort of for, um, for our children, um, for our own, um, you know, capacity to 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 sort of speak the truth about first abolition, but also then in the ways in which men were treating um, women badly, you know, those kinds of things, um, they had to sort of, you know, get rights too. The problem was is that it's along this liberal model, and so they thought, well, in order to be like men or to be out there independent in the public sphere, we have to kind of leave our children behind, so if you sort of toss that whole idea of what it is to be a human being to the side and say, no, actually, we're always interdependent, we're always vulnerable, we're always embodied, we're always um, in need of one another, then we can say that the market and, and not only that, but that all of these relations are um, dependent on what happens in the family um, because the family is where all of the virtues are built both for good relationships with you know one another, but then also going out into you know, the market into the public sphere. And so we need to have a market that's, you know, that shifts and a public uh, sphere that shifts and thinks much more about human beings as embodied as social as familial, which is how um, you know, you could say that we've that it's, it's easier to think about women that way, because we're the ones who can get pregnant and have children and care for children. But it's sort of inviting it's saying, you know, if we are equal, it's better to say, instead of you know, having women have to take the, chil- the lives of their own children to kind of have this liberal equality, why not say that men, invite men back into the, um, into the home and say, this is really important work that we need to do um, together. So it's a bit more of like an agrarian uh, model, but I think all of that helps women um, because then she, as you were asking, like, why, how, how do you get beyond maternity? alone is that you know if 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 men who they're you know women are having children with are then much more attentive to what the reality of of human life is that this life together in the home is where we we kind of build ourselves up um um you know have the virtues that we need to go out into the world um in terms of caring for children and each other um then everybody's going to be better off um because uh then you know hopefully i mean the idea is that then the workplaces would be shaped around those most fundamental relationships and those most fundamental needs of human beings, rather than everybody beholden to the market, which is what we're doing now.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Erica. And um, again, I think your work is so insightful as it sort of deals with those philosophical concerns technological changes in society, different levels of how we actually exist as human beings. So I think in line with that, I want to ask you a little bit about some of the ways that actually women's reproductive powers have historically given rise to women's legal, political, social, and even economic subordination as we're going kind to of hinting at there.
1: Yeah, so I mean, the, very, the, the, the most obvious um, thing would be Um, you know, to look at the ways, I mean, if you start with sort of just Aristotle, (laughs) and I love Aristotle, and um, as I mentioned, you know, Wilson Craft is, uh, is a, you know, very much an Aristotelian in her ethics, but Aristotle had this great insight first, uh, uh, an insight um, about what I call, you know, reproductive asymmetry, is that, you know, obviously the difference between the females and males is that um, you know, females um, reproduce inside themselves and male reproduce outside of themselves. And so you have this, you know, basic fact of asymmetry, which he sees the problem <laughs> is that he saw this as a, in a hierarchical way. Um, and, and so because of that, I mean, you have, you know, his understanding that um, that carries on really throughout um, sort of the Western canon. <laughs> I mean, in in many different in different ways, different kind of iterations, but. Um, that this idea of kind of um, as males as rational and females as more emotional and you see the kind of same thing with Rousseau even though Aristotle and Rousseau are quite different. I mean, Rousseau tries to reappropriate some Aristotle but I don't know how successful he is. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so because of that this idea of women being less rational I mean that's where you see this sort of subordination right is that. even you know Aristotle talks about um you know that that men are well not all men but there are particular men who are made to lead but women like like kind of natural slaves are are meant to be led um and so the subordination kind of comes about through not only i mean this kind of way of thinking about the differences between males and females but then the obvious thing that someone like John Stuart Mill brings up um i mean the fact that women do care for children um that um you know there's when men are stronger and um have more access to kind of power and things like that and women have you know are are more beholden to their own children because of their embodied state um then subordination comes so then the question is like my question is do you just when you have these kinds of asymmetries do you just say well you know we just um allow men to be the one who can kind of walk away from a a pregnancy and women are the ones who are, you know, responsible for that? Or do we have is there another kind of response in justice to that situation? Um, Obviously, the 1970s response was just to, you know, basically say that, like, we want to cure asymmetry through making women not women, right? Um, But there must be another way of thinking about
0: that. Mm, Excellent. Thank you, Erica. And then um, I want to ask you about somebody you mentioned earlier on then. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, if so, the you ask a famous US judge, why then does she sit at the center of this story, both for good and for ill? And
1: Yeah, so she's really interesting and really part of the reason I started, as I mentioned, this um, book in the first place. Um, what's interesting is I, you could say that there, I mean, there's many people who um, know all of Ginsburg's thought may want to nuance this even more, but I think there's two pillars, two chief pillars to her thought, and that is um, her work in anti-discrimination law and her being kind of the chief advocate for abortion rights on the Supreme Court. And so I see a real tension between these two parts of her work. Um, Obviously, um others, you know, other you know, kind of pro-choice feminists would see say that they were just you know basic, and of course, that this is how you would think. So mm-hmm. let me just kind of flesh, flesh that out first. So, as in the 1970s, um, Ginsburg was an advocate, um, and really the one who pushed the US Supreme Court to understand um, you know, basic anti-discrimination law should apply to women. So you know, a law could not prohibit a woman from practicing law uh, simply because she was a woman. A law could not assume that a man would, um, uh, in her very first case, administer an estate simply because he was he was a man. And so what, you know, the, what I argue in the book is that, you know, if Wollstonecraft's basic principle was that women share these rational capacities with men and therefore ought to enjoy kind of, you know, equal civil and political rights, Um, then Ginsburg kind of elevates that principle to a legal or constitutional argument. And I think that is brilliant and good. The problem is, is she takes this um, kind of anti-discrimination view, like all the way down and she discounts entirely the body and our differences in the body. And so she's really the one who, at a constitutional level and is, is, argues, you know, this takes kind of liberalism and takes it all the way down so that women, if they're going to actually engage in um, in the public sphere at all, um, they're gonna have to kind of leave their children behind because that's what it is to be kind of an equal liberal citizen. And so in order to do that, she sees that, she even talks about how equal citizenship stature for women requires abortion rights. Um, and I think that's, you know, done a lot of, um, real damage that to to believe that, you know, to be a full citizen, you kind of have to not only leave your children behind, like in daycare or something <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that you have to that I mean, the idea that you have to have this kind of market equality with men that you have to participate in the market in in, in some equal way, but also that you would actually have to take the life of your own child is is astonishing, but it also sets up um, I think some really um, some bad some bad kind of um, ways in which you know public institutions employers rely end up relying on abortion for women's equality too and so don't make the kind of um, accommodations um, for women and I think for men that should be made for men as well for their responsibilities in the family and so you see like in you know at least in Ireland prior to um the last you know however many years uh two or three years um Ireland probably had one of the best you know kind of pro-life and then real pro-family understandings of things. Um, uh, But you also see that across Europe where there's much less abortion kind of allowance, um, where you have abortion um, restricted much earlier in the pregnancy, but then there's a lot better kind of pro-family policy. Whereas in America, we have very little good pro-family policy, but we have abortion available throughout the pregnancy, basically.
0: Mm, thank you, Erica. And then how did um, more just forms of ad- advocacy then help us to open up a, a new and more balanced uh, era where men and women could respectively engage in both avenues of fulfillment according to their personal talents and their family circumstances? And what are some, what are some of the things that give you hope in that respect? Then?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I guess, you know, I was kind of saying that you have these different ways of responding to reproductive asymmetry. And so Ginsburg is really the, you know, main kind of, she's the quintessential liberal way of, of thinking about this is that we need contraception abortion because then women will be a lot more like men capable of being these equal liberal citizens. And so if we think about a response to asymmetry where we say, actually, um you know, men were engaged in this act of sex that created a child. (laughs) Therefore they should be, you know, responsible for that child too. can't walk away Um, and um, that they should be, you know, responsible as fathers. Um, But then that having a child is not just this private act that has private consequences, that it's actually a public act because, you know, as Marian Glendon, uh, my mentor always says that, you know when we care for children, we're doing that for everyone because those children will go out into the world, you know, as citizens, as friends, um, as you know, future workers, as future teachers, as future spouses. I mean, all sorts of things, and so the work we do in the home is really important for everyone. And so, is there a way to think about, um, you know, what the society owes to um, both women and men who are um, engaging in? Um, Yes, the workplace, but also in the work of the home. And I think, you know, there's different ways of thinking about that. I mean, certainly with regard to more flexible workplaces, but I think there's good movement happening in the United States at least. I think this is already happening in other, you know, in European countries, um, where there's um allowances, really family allowances given to um families because of the work that they do, just making it a bit easier for that for them to do that work so that they're not kind of um disproportionately um uh sort of injured economically by taking on the work of caregiving in the home um and so i think you know it's good anti-discrimination law only takes you so far it's good to say you know you can't make a law that says women can't do something but you also kind of have to help out uh, those who are um not only women who are caring for children but also just families um because it it is you know more work to be um, engaged in that in that kind of um sacrificial Sacrificial work; it takes more money, it takes more resources, and so um, you know they shouldn't kind of be discriminated against because they've chosen to do an act that is you know good for good for everyone.
0: Mm, excellent. And um, then I think in line with what we've discussed so far, and this kind of crude conception of liberty, and at least implicitly, we've referred to a kind of crude idea of equality too but I think part of the problem seems to be that people think in terms of these buzzwords and even philosophically Bishop Byron has said that the, these can't be ultimate goods even philosophically and that he kind of delineates some of the problems with making them so so I want to ask you a little bit about how um, or what's wrong with the state and the courts then Adopting the, these crude uh, theories of equality, say, and how does that then go against what we're speaking about, against like, reality and human flourishing itself? I suppose you've touched on that already, but if you want to. Yeah, add-
1: yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing is that, like, you know, equality and um, our freedom are really means to, to ends, right? And we do take them as kind of ends in themselves. Like, so taking each in turn, you know, we have this idea that with equality, in order for men and women to be equal, first of all, I mean, it, it kind of like, there's no fundamental equality, just based in our sort of being human, right? That there has to be this kind of um, market equality, and I believe absolutely in political equality and civil equality in terms of having you know the same rights and all that. But that there has to be this kind of market equality that there that ends. You know, it's not so much like oh, we're making the same money. I mean, equal pay, of course. But that there we're like working the same hours. That that's. I mean, you look at the Biden administration in the United States, and there's this push. um for daycare and there certainly are um, people, you know, at the lower echelons who of society where it's very difficult to find daycare or that doesn't eat up their entire paycheck and all that so there is a need to deal with this problem. But it's always like this idea um, that you know we've got to get women back to work like that's the main goal, rather than like, you know, how do we make sure we take care of children best and. Are there women? Um, and yes, the answer is absolutely, who want to be taking care of their own children? Um, or are there families who want to be sharing that care between husband and wife or with grandparents? Um, and that and that kind of thing. So to think that we need to have like the, you know, the real signal of equality is this ends, you know, where we um it's not like just equal opportunity it's not just legal equality it's like this equality of ends where everybody is the same working the same number of hours so we're all basically just breadwinners leaving caregiving to you know the state i guess um and that's just a really bad materialistic way of of thinking about equality um and it's and it really shows i mean you know that when you don't have kind of a framework where god is in the picture where you can understand that we are equal i mean this is in our declaration of independence so the fact that we're that it's lost on americans is kind of astonishing but that we're equal as creatures as made um you know by god and that we have our dignity because of being those creatures and that you know and that's where you start so really whatever whether a woman or a man is earning money does not you know indicate their equality at all they have this kind of fundamental human equality um, and so i think that that's the part that is really kind of becomes very scary um, when you lose that understanding of fundamental human equality and you need to try to find ways to you know, shove, like push every woman into the workplace as much as you can, so that she can have this kind of market equality. It's just, it's where you see the kind of logic of the capitalistic market take over, even though it's coming from, in our country, from the left, which is astonishing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So then, you know, with regard to freedom, um, you know, there's just this kind of um, view of freedom um, also as its own end, rather than a means. So, and it's a perfect, like, the right to choose is a perfect way of thinking about it right because it's it's um uh, choice is um the most important thing and so you can't have any constraints on choice and and choice is all about following my desires and so we can't have any constraint on desires either right but that's not at all how um an older uh kind of understanding of freedom came about or um you know how people used to understand freedom which w- was literally just a means um, to like you know making good choices to living a good life, um, and and you know I think that that's and following one's reason you know and not being kind of beholden to one's passions because as I said before I mean that makes one a slave like Mary Wollstonecraft a great line of hers is society can be only only be happy and free in proportion as it, it is virtuous um, because we need to be as rational animals we need to be following that highest part of us which is our reason. And if we're just following our slaves, we're not free.
0: Mm, amen. <laughs> and then um, later in the book, Erica, you um, put the pieces back together again, I suppose, in both law and culture to proffer a more affirmative vision for women and men today. Can you tell us a little bit about that and some of the practical elements that um, offer hope again?
1: Yeah, so I think, um, a big part of it that kind of falls on from what we were talking about is as a line that I take from uh, Jane Adams, who is this kind of remarkable woman. Um, in the 19th century, she was very involved in responses to industrialization, especially for um, the working poor, for the working class. She was a Nobel laureate for uh, the work she did starting founding something called Hull House, which was basically helping families. Um, uh deal with the displacement from you know um industrialization and i think she's a great um model for us today in the sense that um i think we are kind of experiencing the second gilded age where um the real you know wealthy people who are benefiting most from capitalism have no idea kind of how the other half lives (laughs) and so you know they can be living nicely with their um you know families put first but for the rest of the people who are you know kind of um uh, um real you know have you know I mean just think in the practical ways in which their employers kind of make demands on them um in terms of their scheduling like in terms of making them come back to work right after they have children in terms of no flexibility all of those things um are just really you know again we're just beholden this kind of capitalist logic so I like the way Jane Adams put it is that we have to put the family claim over the social claim. And that really to understand, you know, uh, uh, sort of economics, politics, you know, the family together, you have to understand that the, that the market really serves families and their members, not the other way around. And so the work of the family is kind of this precondition um, for, you know, a functioning, flourishing market, but also for a republic. Um, and so I think one of the most important things that we can do now is kind of reduce those sorts of market pressures on families so that they can do what they do, you know, for their own good and for the good of their families, for the good of society as a whole. So, I mean, I talked a little bit about what those um, might be in terms of flexibility and um, getting them more cash, um, making sure that people aren't thrown into um, work that, you know, rather than um, the care for their children that they want to do, that kind of thing.
0: Excellent. And then, um... What are some of the ways and hows of a, how the law might actually begin to acknowledge and respect this human dependency, uh, say our maternal paternal duties and the more immediate structures of c- civil society?
1: Yeah, so that's a really big question. I mean, I think the focus um, of there's, you know, a lot of movement in the United States um, of kind of refocusing um, questions of law on the common good, which I think is is really important um, that we you know pull back from our the focus on rights as the only way to think about justice and really thinking about um you know the obligations we have to one another um, and um, thinking about justice in an older sense of what each one is due, you know and so that's actually one of the things i've been um, doing since the book is trying to think a little bit more about rights theory and then how um how the law can um Better understand. I mean, I think with abortion, it's a really um, is is kind of a perfect question because instead of just thinking like women have these rights to take their lives or their own children, we instead think about um, uh, the whole question in terms of maternal and paternal duties, and then the duties that society has to those to mothers and fathers. And I think that that just would kind of um, cohere better with how individuals. who have you know, become pregnant unintentionally and then um, end up having their child, they always need to have the support. They know that they have a responsibility to that child. And so really um, acknowledging that in the law and saying, yes, there is a, it's not just the child has a right to life, but there's actually the mother has duties to that child, just like we see in all of you know family law is all about kind of the duties that parents have to their children. Uh, but then also to ensure that the father has duties and then what is it that that the community can do in terms of um making sure that the mother and father have what they need to care for that child and i think if you kind of you begin to kind of as you were saying kind of put the pieces back together instead of thinking of both the mother and the child and the fathers these kind of autonomous individuals who are out there with their rights even the rights of the you know life to that child you kind of imagine them as like this know little being over there with rights instead you think of how what are the duties we all have to one another and of course the child has no duties at that point um but um the mother um because of the vulnerability of that child because the mother is the only one who can care for that child at that time the mother has um you know those sorts of duties but she can only you know care for that child properly um if she has help um and so i think Thinking about things in that way with regard to our obligations, um, with regard to our duties um, and kind of interdependencies with one another is just a better way forward that we talk about things that way, um, that we structure sort of the law um, that way better. Like the, there are already existing duties that we have. And so we speak them. I mean, the thing that happens when you start to talk about maternal and paternal duties of care to an unborn child is that. It reverberates backwards toward the act that you know um, uh, created that child in the first place, and so hopefully will help people to think about their own sexual activity better. You know, if I really have these duties of care when a child comes into existence, then I ought to think about what the sexual act is and who, with whom, I want to engage in it. Um, and um, you know, it reverberates back even further as to the ways in which we think about ourselves. Um, and you know, sexuality—the way in which you know we've our culture has been like you know pornified—and um, also you know, women are cons- are sexualized. I think men are more and more sexualized. Um, so I think all those ways, like just just kind of telling the truth about our interdependence and duties to one another. Um, is a way of not entering into the liberal way of thinking as ourselves as kind of autonomous individuals. And so when you don't even enter in by talking first about rights, you have a better way of you're talking, you're you're, you're just sort of more in um, who human beings really are. And so you, I think you can get to solutions more easily and you can um, kind of, I guess the way we would say it is like natural law kicks in um, and, uh, and things are, uh i don't know come the pieces are put back together i guess is the best way to put it
0: mm, excellent thank you erica and uh, i want to ask you just before we conclude a bit about as not just a uh, somebody in america but as a christian concerned with the catholic universal and um the church across the world and i think as you said this book is rooted in american history but there's many lessons i think that apply across the board, and um, in some cases lamentably so, because some of the bad things have filtered down <laughs> to the countries like Ireland, as you suggested, with the kind of move towards abortion and different things. So uh, why then is it vital to, to beyond the United States, uh, to um, this call to the, the the Christian life for men and women, and um, how might that How might we become more active in the church today, and a more embodied, authentic, authentic kind of Christian manner? I suppose doubly important, given the fact that so many of us kind of filter our lives through just social media and so on, and ignore, or even those of us who call ourselves Christians, ignore the importance of the incarnation and what it means to be an embodied human being. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean I think um yeah please don't get all of your information off social media. <laughs> I'm glad you're I'm glad you're spending a lot of time with Bishop Bear and I am too. He's taught taught me a lot a lot, but I think you know to understand sort of the truths about who we are and where we're going and all that, I just think um there's you know we have all of us really have to be called to prayer a lot more than we do that we need to see that you know in order to kind of get out of the mess that we're in um I truly believe. I mean, more and more, kind of every day, that um, it's really personal sanctity that um, is so attractive, um, and I think um, really will draw people in. It's only personal sanctity that is the fruit of prayer, and for you know, for Catholics, this, the sacraments too, is being like you know, divinized, made, um, you know, transformed um, by Christ's very being in us. Um, but I think it's also in our relationships with one another that people will see. I mean, I, I think about um my my husband and we have many children, and you know, it's a hard life, but it's such a good life because of the prayer that I begin with every day that my children um, begin with. and um and I think you can see in just the relationships. I mean, I think about how I used to think about things as a secular feminist. Um, you know, I always h- hoped for. That I would, you know, um, find a man who would be emotionally available and emotionally attentive and all that, and I can tell you, I never found them among secular males. <laughs> <laughs> but then, um, I mean, both my husband is a very serious Catholic man, but then, I mean, nearly all of the Catholic men, the serious Catholic men I know, serious Christian, other types of, um, you know, uh, religious folk who really take them, you know, their religions real seriously, that they spend time in prayer. There is that emotional availability, and to see men like that, especially when, um, you know, you have public figures, public male figures who are, you know, crude and rude and all the other things, just to see that, um, I think it's just such a draw. It's so attractive. Um, We have in our we have communities of kind of families who or a a community of families who get together both surrounded um, by schools, but then also just through other activities and to see my teenagers just be see what other you know husbands and wives are like and then what other children are like and that they're all working toward. um, um, You know, uh, being you know people um of of virtue and of holiness, and that that really is the happiest way as compared to the life that's on offer, whether it's in social media, although I try to keep my children off of that, Um, but just out in the world. I mean, it's just, it's such a huge um, difference right now that I think there's, I have a lot of hope. I mean, raising children right now, I have so much hope that the contrast that is offered between what a real like, embodied christian life looks like and the joy even if it's hard the joy and peace that comes from that um and kind of like the answers to life's questions you know that um is just this beautiful thing this beautiful attraction compared to um the real i don't know like disintegration and stress and um and you know i don't know like animosity that's out in the world. And so I have this great hope for like a Catholic Renaissance. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that really requires all of us to take seriously, um, you know, prayer, and to really make an effort to, to really um, see that as the most important thing that we do every day. Um, And to sort of, you know, turn our lives over to God, because he's really the one who's gonna solve all these problems that we have, (laughs) not us.
0: Amen. and uh, is there anything else then that you're working on now at the moment or do you still feel the passion to get involved with in the future that you'd like to tell us about or
1: um yeah I mean as I mentioned I'm working on rights theory but I also um I'm a founder of a classical school um here and I'm um really see classical schools as being one of the one of the means of kind of a a catholic renaissance so um I am, you know, hopefully finding ways as my you know the the my book and you know the kind of launch of it last summer, and you know people asking for interviews all that is that begins to recede that i'll. um, begin to focus more on classical education, I especially am eager to get classical education into poor neighborhoods not really sure how to do that yet, but um, that's a real kind of at um, in my heart so we'll see what happens.
0: Mm -hmm. glory to god and then um, where can viewers or listeners find out more about you and your work if they want to follow up from this interview
1: yes thank you so much um so the best place to find my work um is at ethics and public policy center in washington dc just go to eppc.org and they kind of keep all of my work for me there Um, and then of course the rights of women um, is on amazon and at notre dame press if you want to pick it up
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much again and God bless you, Eric.
1: Thank you, Mark. am